Hi everyone, it's me, Kirk Monroe, back on the air, and it sure is great to be back on the air, I should say. I know I said air twice, but hey, if you're going to be on the air, you better make it worth the while. Um, last night, um, I apologize for not being on, but there was a good reason why. I was doing my homework last night to get prepared for this evening's podcast episode of not just History 101, but for the continuation of signing their lives away, the men and misfortune, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence by none other than Denise Kiernan and Joseph D. Agnes. Now, we've already finished talking about four of the 13 colonies. We're now on to colony number five in terms of the processional order in which the colonies signed the document on a one-by-one basis, also per uh, region. Colony number five we're going to be discussing tonight is New York. Of course, when we think of New York, most of us think of New York City in today's world, but we also must not forget about New York State. Now, I do know that, yes, New York State and New York City can be seen as two different worlds, but in the end, when it's all summed up best, what is New York known for? Being the Empire State. You have the Statue of Liberty in the city. You have some of the most unique attractions in the state of New York, ranging from the Adirondacks to the Thousand Islands, the Finger Lakes, the Tug Hill region, Niagara Falls, to Chautauqua, Lake Erie. The list can go on and on. But regardless, New York is the Empire State. Of course, in 1776, I don't believe it got that title just yet. But nonetheless, New York itself, over time, rightfully earned the name the Empire State. Well, one thing I was interested in learning about with New York in terms of uh, pre-1776 times is that uh, for the longest time I was under the impression that the colony had been first explored by the English, or should I say the Dutch, I was actually learned, I actually was surprised to learn that um, an Italian explorer, who happened to be the same person that explored uh, the coast of Rhode Island, none other than Giovanni da Verrazzano, he had um, navigated the Atlantic coast of North America between the Carolinas and Newfoundland, and this included New York Harbor to Narragansett Bay. So it is very safe to say that Giovanni de Verrazzano had explored the New York Harbor at the same time, or should I say that same year, 1524, that he also explored the island that we now know as Rhode Island. So it's safe to say that Mr. de Verrazzano was not missing out on anything when it came to his exploration uh, voyages in the New World. But we go to the year 1609, and what's important about that year is that Henry Hudson marked, he helped mark the beginning of true European involvement with the area that we know as New York. It's interesting to say that many of these uh, great explorers, not just in the time of Henry Hudson, but before him, most notably, these explorers were all looking for something in common, trade routes, like to the Orient, being China. They were looking for a trade route either to the West Indies, the Caribbean, and in the case of Mr. Hudson, they were looking for a pa- he was looking for a passage route to Asia. 
course, I'd say he probably didn't know any better when he landed in what is known as present-day New York around 1609, thinking that he had found a passage route to Asia. But nonetheless, even though it wasn't the route to Asia, he still made a significant uh, contribution for his discovery. He worked for the Dutch East India Company, and the Dutch, uh, believe it or not, were actually the first to establish a settlement in New York before the English did. And what I found was interesting was that uh, before I get to the year 1614, I should point out that, when, that in 1609, given that Henry Hudson's voyage did mark the beginnings of European involvement within the area, it should also be noted that in 1609 in Virginia, two years after the English had officially established the first um, settlement in the New World being what we now know as Jamestown, an, an unfortunate circumstance is going on in 1609 in Virginia, known as the infamous Starving Time. And sadly, hundreds of colonists in Virginia die not just for means of starvation, they die at the expense of um, not being able to um, fend for themselves in not just in the wild, but how to go about fending themselves in um, terms of having proper um, clothing, shelter, and adequate food supplies. And I will talk more about that when we get to Virginia. But it is safe to be to know, or not should I say safe to know, it is important to be reminded that just because someone's exploring somewhere in in a part of colonial, or what we come to know as colonial America, they may be exploring a particular area, but we should also be reminded of what else is going on in the New World at that time, because like the starving time of uh, Jam for Jamestown, Virginia, it's just a reminder that not everywhere in the New World was 100% perfect. I mean, think about it. You've got conflicts with Europeans and Indians. You've got people dying because they don't know how to um, take care of themselves in new surroundings. You know, people are coming over to the New World thinking they're going to strike rich by finding natural resources. But the problem is, is that, okay, if you find these natural resources, where are you going to store them? You don't have a Fort Knox. In other words, you don't have a vault where you can go secretly store the stuff. People haven't um, mastered the concept of uh, hunting and gathering, we should say. That is the Europeans. They are more concerned about finding what's best for their own interests, but not coming together as a team in terms of how to go about survival in the wilderness. So anyways, uh, back to the primary uh, focal point here, that uh, in the year 1614, the Dutch, under the command of a gentleman named Hendrik Korstiansen, that's the way I pronounce it, but I could be wrong, but it's a good try, they had, re they under his leadership, the Dutch had re went about rebuilding an abandoned French nobility home that the French had um, built a few years earlier when they had made their first attempt to settle in the area. Well, the Dutch went about renaming this um, abandoned noble estate, which was, you know, one of grand 
pompous or grand pomp and elegance, they renamed the fort as Fort Nassau, being the first Dutch settlement in North America located along the Hudson River. Unfortunately, it was destroyed in 1617 by flooding. And it should be interesting to note that um, if anybody has been to the Bahamas, which I know countless people have been to the Bahamas, there is a, a cap. The capital of um, the Bahamas is um, Nassau. So that's also tied to the Dutch. Very interesting connection, to say the least. But what was the uh, fundamental purpose for Henry Hudson's um, mission when he um, uh, settled about uh, what was present-day New York City or where he went about in exploring New York? Well, he went about... Um, exploring the coast in search of fur trading post outlets. And what are when I say fur trading post outlets, what am I getting at? Well, these are outlets for, um, think about it, fur trading posts, we think of the beaver. The beaver's fur is very highly prized by Europeans. Think about it. You can make, you can turn the beaver's pelts into fine top-of-the-line hats, uh, and anything else that the fur itself would be suited for custom-made uh, personal uh, desires. But anyways, it is interesting to note that uh, some of the um, tribes that lived along the coast of New York were the Lenape and the Wampanoag. And it turns out that the Wampanoag were all, had also had tribal establishments in present-day Cape Cod around Hyannis. So we go to 1623, and what's unique about that uh, year is that a, a settlement um, known as Fort Orange, or what's called New Netherland, is established by the Dutch. So the Dutch have established um, what's called Fort Orange. And in the 17th century, uh, New Netherland became home to um, multiple Dutch trading posts that were self-geared um, or that, yes, uh, they were geared for the trade of pelts and beaver fur, as mentioned earlier from the Lenape, and also, uh, ironically, from the Iroquois. Now, uh, the Iroquois, however, are in present-day New York State, but their presence is very, very widely known, not just in the Northeast, but perhaps part of that which you call um, woodland Indian um, unit that is comprised of North and South and if anybody wants to take a guess at how many Indian tribes made up that made up the League of Iroquois, for a number of years it was five. And the five that made up the League of Iroquois were the were the Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, uh, Seneca, and Canandaigua. And another tribe though, came later by the early part of the 18th century, known as the Tuscarora, which came from North Carolina up to New York to make it the powerful League of Six. But ironically, the Iroquois were also referred to as the Haudenosaunee, which was, their, um, which was the name of their uh, confederacy. So we go to 1625 and Fort Amsterdam, became what was known as New Amsterdam in present-day New York City. 
And um, I do believe that there is a, a place in New York State on the outskirts of Albany known as Amsterdam. And it is safe to say that it's uh, called that because of the uh, Dutch influence at the time of, of uh, settling in the New World. But by the 1670s, the colony of New York is, endure, has, is enduring a series of what are known as the Anglo-Dutch Wars. And there are about three of the wars. However, by 1674, a treaty known as the Treaty of Westminster ended all hostilities by returning what we know as New Netherland, or what's called New York, back to England. So it's really not until about, about the mid-1670s that the British, or rather I should say the English, are in full control of New York. Now, um, I, I should say that we go on now to the 1760s, and why do we go about with the 1760s? Well, we're not far from uh, what we now would get, be getting into the Declaration of Independence, but the 1760s are a very, very pivotal era of time for New York. For a number of years, I always thought that the Sons of Liberty uh, had originated in Boston since Massachusetts was the uh, cradle for American independence. But it turns out that the Sons of Liberty organization was actually started in New York City. And it was started in response to that infamous 1765 Stamp Act, which we all know led to the cry of taxation without representation. But prior to the First and Second Continental Congresses being established, it should be interesting to note that there was a Stamp Act Congress. And even I myself would have to admit that I did not know that there was a thing called a Stamp Act Congress. It was the first gathering of elected representatives from a majority of the 13 colonies, and it turns out that about nine of the 13 colonies had assembled to come together in defiance of the Stamp Act. Well, it is safe to say that the Sons of Liberty may have uh, been its own for, it may have been its own initial interest group for its time. And while, yes, there may have been plenty of people who didn't view the Sons of Liberty with a lot of, um, what do you call it, enthusiasm, but nonetheless, the, the, the organization eventually helped establish what, what we now call the first um, assembly of men coming together to um, share their opposition towards this piece of legislation, not just the individual piece of um, legislation, but coming together as one, like a modern-day Congress, to um, sort out their um, reasons for why they were totally against it. But the Stamp Act Congress itself resulted in a declaration of rights and grievances. Anybody know what grievances are? In other words, grievances are... Um, are concerns, they are, um, you know, when you file a grievance, you're filing a complaint, basically. So the uh, grievances are not just concerns, they are complaints. In other words, that you can have, you can list all the rights that you feel that you should be entitled to, but before you can get into rights, you have to address the 
the um, the concerns and the complaints about why the mistreatment is going on. In other words, you have to have good um, what's called a good show cause for this um, uh, concern. But the Stamp Act Congress was the first to establish uh, written documents expressing opposition to Parliament's unruly practice of passing legislation without consent from all 13 colonies. So in other words, it wasn't just about the Stamp Act alone. You had the year before uh, that, that Sugar Act, which raised revenue in hopes that it would uh, help the colonists be willing to pay for the war, that infamous French and Indian War. But there again, that was an early sign of... Um, of uh, taxation without representation, but all, but most notably an early sign of failure to give proper consent. And of course, it also applied to other infamous pieces of legislation like those Townshend duties, to the Quartering Act, to what would become uh, the Quebec Act and the Coercive Acts. So basically, the list goes on and on, but there's something in common. Every, every time a piece of legislation Parliament passes, it just fuels the fire for the colonies to come together and say, hey, we're going to keep opposing every piece of legislation you pass because you are passing this stuff without our consent. And it's interesting to note that the document itself raised what was called 14 points of concern I found a few of these uh, worth mentioning. Trial by jury, to allowing only colonial assemblies the right to tax their people, that is, their own people. And you know, it's interesting, a trial by jury. Okay, if the Stamp Act Congress is established in 1765, they're already one step ahead of what would come five years later in the aftermath of that infamous Boston Massacre um, incident, which I had talked about from the previous season being Dan Abrams' John Adams under fire. It's interesting to note that many many members of the Stamp Act Congress advocated trial by jury. Well, who do they have to thank five years later, even though it was not the most popular thing for John Adams to have done, and that was to represent the eight soldiers and their commander who fired onto the crowd of um, of, uh, the, of that unruly mob, rather, I should say. But the bottom line is, is that John Adams at that time did help establish what was called trial by jury or the right to a fair and speedy trial. So it is safe to say that, you know, we've all been led to believe that everybody talked about this stuff at the First and Second Continental Congresses. Actually, that's not true. The Stamp Act Congress was the precursor to the Continental Congresses, but they, but that Congress was laying out a foundation for what would come by the start of the 1770s. And one other important piece of information to point out, which I did mention from the previous podcast involving um, none other than Oliver Wolcott from Connecticut... But it should be pointed out here that on July 9th of 1776, it was that date, that date 
Not only did George Washington read the Declaration of Independence to the crowd and to the soldiers, but it was on that day that New York itself officially declared its independence from England. What a very, trip, what a very fitting way to do it because it was on that date where, number one, Oliver Wolcott is in New York City at Bowling Green Park, but two, he witnesses King George III's statue be toppled, and as I said from the previous podcast, Oliver Wolcott was smart enough to take multiple chunks of the statue, of, the, of parts to that statue, by melting them all bit by bit into none other than 42,088 musket balls. The melting of his majesty, which enabled um, a year later for um, General Horatio Gates and his army at Saratoga Springs, or should I say the Battle of Saratoga, to help defeat General John Burgoyne and the British, which in the end led Benjamin Franklin to be able to persuade the French to join us in fighting against the English. So, now we're ready to move on to the primary um, focal points for tonight's podcast. And here again, it's very important to talk about some 101 history about each of the colonies. Yes, the signers that I talk about are important, but it's also important to give a little brief 101 history about the colonies because these colonies just weren't formed overnight. Uh, They weren't... um, formed overnight by Europeans who just came in and made a life for themselves and then said one day, oh, we don't like being um, governed by England no more, so let's just declare our independence. And it doesn't work that way. So uh, the first question to ask is, how many signers from New York signed the Declaration of Independence? I will give you a number. The answer is between four and six. The answer is four. The four signers are the following, Philip Livingston, William Floyd, Francis Lewis, Lewis Morris. What I do know is that um, Philip Livingston, for example, was related to Robert Livingston, who was on that committee of five that um, drafted the Declaration of Independence. And it should be pointed out that there is a county in New York State known as Livingston County, which is in the Finger Lakes region. And it's named for none other than Robert Livingston and his family. The two, uh, we will talk about uh, two signers from New York in this podcast. And the two that I really found to be worthy to share are Lewis Morris and Francis Lewis. Well, let's start with Lewis Morris. He was born in 1726. And it seems that um, a fair number of signers that I've talked about so far were born in that year. I don't know what's special about 1726, but it just seems to be a coincidence that that a couple of uh, signers were born in that year. It's interesting that Mr. Morris was born six years before George Washington was, and about nine years before John Adams. Well, he lived on an estate that was grand in its day. It was known as the Morrisania Estate. But ironically, the area where Mr. Morris grew up in 
is now comprised of public housing projects to boarded up buildings. It's what's now known as being the Bronx, or should I say the South Bronx. His family was well established even prior to 1776. He even had a grandfather who was the royal governor of New Jersey at one time. He even had a relative in New York who served as chief justice. And it's very fair to say that he was educated in terms of being able to go off to college. He was educated at Yale University. His profession was that of a planter. He received, believe it or not, a title of nobility at age 32 upon the death of his father. He became the third lord of Morrisania or Morrisania Manor. He was pretty much safe to say to be seen as the picture of an aristocrat. Now, of course, as we all know in England, there are still, to this modern day, titles of nobility. I don't know of any other... Uh, signer at this time, from what I've read, who um, received a title of nobility upon the death of a family member, or just a title of nobility in general. And as we go in later on down the road in our history, especially when the Constitution is established, um, we do know that Thomas Jefferson is in France at that time. And the reason I mention this part is because Thomas Jefferson wants, does not want the government, the new government, to have any association with titles of nobility. In other words, Jefferson would, does not want anybody to be referred to as His Excellency or His Majesty, His Royal Highness, and I do believe it is safe to say that he would not want anybody to be referred to as the first or second lord of, of um, say, Morrisania, for example. In other words, it would, it would be seen as too European and too much of a um, monarchy style of government that would um, threaten his, um, not just his way of life, but threaten the overall um, future government's uh, uh, functioning. And I think it's safe to say Thomas Jefferson did have a point there. But what I did find uh, worth learning is that all four of New York signers were all four of the signers from New York were very financially well off. Well, think of it this way: in today's world, New York City has oft, is often referred to as the financial capital of the world. So these four men would have been a good early example of um, representing. At the time, it was obviously not the financial capital of the world, but they could have been an early example of what would come years later. Well, for Mr. Morris, the presence of British troops in New York really did change his outlook on relations with England because I do believe it is safe to say, for his case, that he probably did have... Um, ties to England. He probably did believe that he would spend the rest of his life maintaining allegiance to the crown. But of course, all of this changes in 1775 when Parliament 
wanted to tax the people of New York for supporting troops, which probably came under that infamous quartering act from a few years later. And of course, the assembly wants nothing to do with um, taking up uh, taxes on Parliament's request to support troops already stationed there. So the assembly votes in opposition to this request, and Mr. Morris goes along with it. He is sent to Congress in 1775. That is the Second Continental Congress. And what I have had to be reminded of is that when the First Continental Congress met in 1774, they met on the grounds of trying to find every means of reconciliation there was possible with England. They knew what Massachusetts, for example, the rest of the 12 colonies knew what Massachusetts was facing. But at the same time, they also wanted to do everything there was to try to avoid war. And so the objective was to have in place a Second Continental Congress that would meet on May 10th of 1775. Well, what do you know? Three weeks before May 10th of that year, Massachusetts is already engaged in two battles with the mother country at Concord and Lexington, or what's known as the shots heard round the world. So is it fair to say that by 1775, the Second Continental Congress is much different from the first one? Absolutely. Many of the men who come together now know that they are facing different, uh, different tasks or objectives at stake. Well, what is Lewis Morris um, doing at the Second Continental Congress? He's working on committees to help secure munitions. It's another word for ammunition. In other words, he's very concerned about he's very concerned about how um, how our troops, or should I say, how is the Continental Army going to be able to be funded in terms of being able to pro provide a soldier with a musket, or not just a musket, but with a rifle? How are we going to go about providing soldiers with adequate supplies? In other words, are they going to be given X amount of musket balls to put in their rifles, or, or anything that would be essential to defend, not only defend themselves with, but to fire against the opposition. It is safe to say that for Mr. Morris, that this was a never-ending search objective, because he knew that it was essential, not just in the present moment, but long-term, to make sure that, that the soldiers were well secured when it came to having munitions uh, short and long term. He did serve as brigadier general to the local militia in what we now know as Westchester, New York, which is um, not far from New York City. As a matter of fact, um, there is a um, a town in Westchester County that um, I have I am very familiar with. I've never been there, but I do hear about it quite often, known as New Rochelle. He was very instrumental in helping New York approve the Declaration of Independence, especially on the day of July 9th, because that was the day that New York officially declared its independence from England. And believe it or not, Mr. Morris signed the document in September. And remember, people, not everybody signed the Declaration of Independence. 
on that infamous day that that we not so much infamous day on that famous day that we celebrate our anniversary in terms of our our founding on July 4th. As for the estate that he grew up on being Morrisania estate, it sadly was destroyed at the hands of British forces after the Declaration of Independence was approved. And it is safe to say probably that for um, many of our signers, yes, they knew what risks were at stake, but for some of them, they probably knew that their homes were going to be destroyed as a result of um, signing the document. Well, after the American Revolutionary War ended, Mr. Morris served as a judge. He also served as a state senator to New York. He even lobbied on Alexander Hamilton's behalf in ratifying the, U the United States Constitution. There was good news to report from what I learned about this gentleman, he was successful in restoring the Morrisania estate, and he was able to spend the rest of his life there before dying at the age of 71 in January 1798. I do believe it is safe to say, though, that not many, that most of our forefathers were not fortunate, perhaps, in being able to restore their homes to their grand opulence prior to the British... Um, once the British had set foot, because many of many British forces, regardless of whether it was in New York City or anywhere else in colonial America, they did destroy um, homes, especially homes to those who had betrayed um, their allegiance to the crown. Now, Mr. Morris is buried at the Morrisania family vault. But what I find interesting here is that where he's buried, it is located in what's known as the Mott Haven neighborhood where a church stands, or should I say St. Anne's Episcopal Church is located. The estate is no longer around, but where St. Anne's Episcopal Church is located, the family vault lies in a neighborhood considered to be in the heart of one of the poorest congressional districts in the United States. This is really, I guess, what you call a double-edged sword. Yes, in his day, Mr. Morris grew up in a very, what we might consider a wealthy neighborhood, or just a, in a wealthy setting because his home was one of opulence. But in today's time, where that home once stood is now in one of the poorest neighborhoods. It is safe to say that where he is buried and where the family vault is, it's one that encompasses a tale of two worlds. In his time, the area was grand. The years after, the location of where he, the family um, vault is is in a rough, unstable area. I know that may not be pleasant to say, but that is also a, a reminder of how much our world has changed since the time Mr. Morris lived in, um, in that um, setting. Now we're going to move on to the second signer. And I would have to say that of the two that I um, 
felt were important to talk about, I would have to say that Francis Lewis probably was by far the most interesting. Not that Lewis Morris wasn't, but I will explain why I feel that Francis Lewis was probably my favorite of the two. He's born in 1713, and he is the oldest of the four New York signers. He had to work very hard his entire life, both personally and professionally. True or false, was Mr. Lewis born in, the, in colonial America? The answer is no. He was sadly orphaned as a child in Wales. Okay, people, do we know where Wales is? It's in England, but it's located along the coast. So sadly, this man was orphaned as a child in Wales. He was raised by an aunt. But fortunately, he was able to get a, an education in both Scotland and England. And he was apprenticed as a clerk in London. How, at what age does Mr. Lewis come to the New World? Or should we say what we come to know as colonial America? He comes at age 21. And with hard work and raw determination, he eventually made a fortune in the mercantile business. His, his travels for business-related purposes, believe it or not, took him as far away as Russia. Now, can you imagine people going from colonial America to Russia... You know, think think this carefully. He's only got one way to get over there, and that's by boat. There's no airplane. I find it amazing that some of our forefathers did travel by boat overseas during the time that they lived in. Of course, they didn't know any better. And we also have to be reminded that our forefathers relied on the phases of the moon to help ensure safe passage, getting to and from their destinations overseas. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson believed that in order to ha have safe travels overseas, going, say, from Virginia to France, he believed that the boat that he traveled on ought to be no more than five years old. He was convinced that if a boat was over five years old, it was not safe to be on. We also have to remember that the boats that these that that people like Jefferson and perhaps Francis Lewis traveled on were used primarily for cargo purposes. So believe me, your your uh, living conditions on these boats are not uh, top of the line. And I can only imagine what it must have been like if you got seasick. There was no Dramamine. There were no sea patch medicine either. So you were at your own risk when traveling on the high water. And while, yes, um, the phases of the moon were essential to, um, to, to, to determining when it would be best to travel on the ocean, it still didn't guarantee a safe uh, voyage. But nonetheless, there were those who were willing to, to make those travels and they still made it back safe. So more power to them, and especially more power to Francis Lewis. He, and it's interesting to note that even before 1776, a fair number of our forefathers were serving in that war 
to the Europeans known as the Seven Years' War, but what we knew as the French and Indian War. Well, Mr. Lewis did serve in that war, and he worked as a, as a supplier at Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario, and Oswego is what we know is in that uh, Tug Hill area and what's referred to as the Snow Belt uh, area. It turns out that Mr. Lewis was one of 1,700 British troops who were unfortunately captured by the French when Fort Oswego fell into French possession around 1756. And what really um, shocked me was that Mr. Lewis, along with perhaps other um, British troops, spent roughly seven years in prison and it wasn't until 1763, when the war itself ended, that Mr. Lewis was released from prison, and he earned, and he, rather I should say, obtained a 5,000-acre land grant from Parliament as a result of his service to the Crown. You talk about sacrifice right there, being in jail, or should I say prison, for seven years, not knowing if he would even survive for seven years in jail. But yet, he paid the price himself. But in the end, receiving a 5,000-acre land grant, more power to him for making the sacrifice by, by spending the time in prison. However, though, by 1765, it's safe to say that Mr. Lewis's... Um, Relations with England, like many others, start beginning to sour. What does he do? He attends the Stamp Act Congress in 1765. He's very active with the New York Sons of Liberty chapter. He is elected to Congress in 1775, or should I say that Second Continental Congress, and he works on marine affairs to foreign affairs to the Board of Admiralty. Here is a defining moment for Mr. Lewis. He had a few defining moments, but I think this is one that is very um, attributing to him. First off, before we talk about the incident, is it safe to say that even when war does break out between the colonies and England, is it safe to say that everybody is in total unison, meaning agreement, with everything. No. Is that a bad thing? I would say yes and no. But what really shocked me was that an incident came about known as the Conway, Ca Conway Cabal. A fair number of uh, Patriot military officers and congressmen wanted George Washington out as commander. They felt that he just was not suited for the job. And what we should remember is that after um, the battles of Lexington and Concord, as well as Bunker Hill, or most notably after Lexington and Concord, I should say, George Washington becomes commander of the Continental Army. However, though, there are like I said a moment ago, there are a fair number of Patriot military officers and congressmen who want George Washington out as commander. What does um, cabal mean? I learned that cabal means 
it has to do with a secret plot or a clique. That is a group of people coming together to carry out a conspiracy or a plot to remove a person from their post. And scary enough, there were a handful of men who wanted George Washington out. They didn't want him to resign. They were willing... Well, maybe it's safe to say they wanted him to resign. But luckily, this plot was foiled. And everyone involved did make amends with George Washington. Nobody was hung for it, which was probably a blessing. Now, come August 2nd of 1776, we know through historian records or through history accounts now that the majority of the men uh, who have put their lives on the line to agree that the Declaration of Independence must go into effect, which it already has done so, but by August 2nd, most of the men, including Francis Lewis himself, signed this document. But what Mr. Lewis, unfortunately, um, is faced with is that his home is destroyed by British battleships. And to make matters worse, his wife was taken by British forces as prisoner of war. She sadly was denied the most basic fundamental rights. She was denied bed. She was denied a change of clothing to proper food. And this didn't happen in just one or three day span. This was uh, for weeks on end. So you talk about enduring cruel and unusual punishment. You talk about um, being deprived of, of basic human rights. And what I should point out is that, you know, here we think 1776 is this grand year. It is grand because we have signed the Declaration of Independence. But what is scary about 1776 is that the British have launched an all-out assault on New York. They have brought the whole nine yards with them. Thousands of warships come in. They have brought um, a colossal of um, military men to fight, not just on land but on sea. They are bringing their full-scale might into colonial America to say, hey, we mean business. You all... You all may have driven us out of Boston, but now we're coming into a new territory to show you that, hey, not only can we find more people who are going to swear their allegiance to the crown, but that we are going to now be able to go on a bigger scale to annihilate. And and it's not just all of that, but historians know that that various battles fought between Long Island, Kipps Bay, um, to what's called Brooklyn Heights. Those battles ended very badly for the uh, for the Americans, or should I say, the Patriots. And and in many of those battles, our troops were overrun to the point where they were taken prisoner of war, and many of them were placed on ships never to see a day of light again. And historians know that many of the men who died on our side died on these ships. 
And I have seen documentaries on television about what took place on these ships, but it is safe to say that it was a miniature holocaust. I can't compare it to what happened in World War II with the Jews, but seeing footage in terms of reenactment, it is like the equivalent of a, of a holocaust, but on a different level. It is a very good blessing in many ways that Francis Lewis's wife did not experience this fate. It just so happens that that um, divine intervention was on Mr. Lewis's side, thanks in part to George Washington, who was able to negotiate a prisoner exchange. Had Francis Lewis not stood in defense of George Washington, it might be safe to say that George Washington might not have been able to have conducted a prisoner exchange that got, his, that got Mrs. Lewis out of jail. Here's a good lesson, people. Don't burn bridges. Don't go along sometimes with what other people have to say if they don't like someone being in command. Well, it turns out that Mr. Lewis stood his ground and decided to take a different route and come to George Washington's defense. As for Mrs. Lewis, what is unfortunate is that she died in 1779, nearly three years after she had been originally taken by British force into prison. And it is safe to say that because of having been in prison, that it probably did, it did um, end her life earlier than expected. She was in her early 60s when she died, but it might be safe to say that had she never been taken prisoner of war, that she would have uh, lived a lot longer. As for Mr. Lewis and his wife did have seven children, but only three lived to adulthood, being two sons and a daughter. And if you think what his wife endured as being a prisoner of war was bad enough, his daughter committed the ultimate sin. She felt that it was okay to marry a British naval officer. And it was bad enough that Mr. Lewis himself had opposed this this marriage slash arrangement. He forbid her from doing it. Well, what does she do? She doesn't um, bother to think about what her own father went through. So she betrays the family by marrying this officer and goes to England to live a life and never to return. What a crushing blow it is to Mr. Lewis and to his sons. However, Mr. Lewis is still able to live a good life. He serves on the board of Admiralty until 1781, which is ironically the same year that the British surrender at Yorktown. He die, Mr. Lewis dies, though, in the, eight, in the year 1802, and he makes it to almost 90 years of age. But what's ironic about the year 1802 is that when he passes away at that time, West Point being America's first military school, gets established. It is fair to say that Mr. Lewis was the only signer whose wife was imprisoned. 
And there is a county in New York State known as Lewis County. It's named after Fran one of Francis Lewis's son named Morgan, who served as a governor of New York. Lewis County is sandwiched in between the Adirondacks and the Thousand Islands region in what's known as the Tug Hill Country. And it is interesting to note that there are two towns in um, Lewis County, one being Lowville, which is the county seat, and another seat, or should I say town, known as Krogan. What's interesting about Krogan? Well, it's named after a man known whose name is George Krogan. His significance comes well after the American Revolution, but he was a hero in the War of 1812, which was America's second war for independence. But Mr. Krogan had an uncle named William Clark, who teamed with Meriwether Lewis to lead that famed Lewis and Clark expedition all the way to the Pacific coast as a result of having, under Thomas Jefferson's presidential leadership, acquired the Louisiana Territory from France for $15 million. It just goes to show you what connections there are, not just in the present, but in the future. And yes, Francis Lewis was a very remarkable man. And had it not been for his willingness to stand up to George Washington in his defense, perhaps Washington might not have been our commander. And what a blow that would have been, because if it weren't for George Washington, there probably would not have been a Continental Army. That's not to say that there were other men who served under him who were very capable leaders, as we will find out, like Henry Knox, Nathaniel Green to um, Marquis de Lafayette, um, to Frederick von Steuben. Uh, the list could go on and on. But the bottom line is, without George Washington, there truly is no Continental Army. But nonetheless, we also have Francis Lewis to thank for his support on behalf of George Washington's defense when it was sorely needed. Well... We are now five colonies down and eight more to go. But the fun with learning all of this is still there. Remember, people, freedom is not free. And each of the 13 colonies had a part to play. And while, yes, their objectives were different, in the end, we all still came together. And that's what matters most. Thank you for letting me share tonight's podcast episode. I look forward to another one here soon. God bless. Good night.